All right. Well, good morning, church. The weather outside is frightful. Uh, it's good to be. Our drummer is actually out plowing right now, uh, so that's why he's not here. Jill's at home looking for Lucy. We know she's in a snowbank somewhere, right? Be good. Just kidding. We are pretty sure we know where she is. Uh, my name is Justin, one of the pastors here, elders at Peninsula Grace. We're glad you're here worshiping uh, our Lord with us in uh, the, the, uh, the winter wonderland that we've got outside. Um, we are going to be looking at t- this morning, starting a, a few weeks, talking about this season that we find ourselves in. Uh, but first, I, I remember as a teenager uh, driving the streets of Soldatna with my friend Chet. And we would listen to music in, in Chet's truck. I hated listening to music with Chet in his truck. And the reason was, um, this is when, right around the time when the iPads were, uh, iPods were coming out, okay? We were so excited because you could have like, all your music on this one little box. Remember the little... If I had any song you could listen to on this little box, you're always thinking about the song that you're not listening to, right? And you keep skipping along. This is actually backed by research. We call this a, the paradox of choice, where ironically... We seem, the, the more options we have, the less satisfaction we actually enjoy with any choice that we've made. Now, this is true of music. It's true at the store. We can, like, go and there's, like, 29 options of sour cream, right? There's chives in that one? Are you kidding me? We even know this with marriage. Like, they've, they've found that culturally, um, when you are able to personally choose your spouse over an arranged marriage, it doesn't actually uh, lower the divorce rates. In fact, in many co- countries, it actually raises the divorce rate. So I'm here if you want me to arrange your marriage for you. If you're single, I can, I can do that for you. Um, but this is the idea. This is the, the paradox of, of choice. And the, word, the kids are dismissed, so we, can, we, we know Santa's not real. Uh, it's a, um, but even, even a little bit more impressive than that, one of the, one of the, this, this Christmas time is filled with paradox of how the infinite God could become a finite man. How, how the uncontainable creator could confine himself to human flesh in a manger, swaddled up. I love, we're going to sing it at the end here, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the, the line, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That the way that God revealed himself was actually to hide, as it's saying, veiling himself in the form of humanity. I love, there's an ancient hymn called Come Stand Amazed, and it speaks to this paradox of who Jesus is. It invites us to behold this truth. That it says, See the mighty The mighty God, weak and tender as a baby. I love this line. See the word who now is mute. The word made flesh that as a baby couldn't even utter an intelligible word. See the sovereign without splendor. And see the fullness destitute. The one who was worthy of all worship was rejected in an inn. The baby is a king. And on a silent night, God loudly proclaims peace on earth to a world in chaos. And over the next two weeks, we want to look at some of these profound truths that we see in these paradoxes of Christmas. This week, we're going to look at Isaiah as he looks forward to the coming king. And then next week, we'll look at Luke as he looks at the, coming, at the king who has come. And, and in our reading plan, as you join us with that, Ross mentioned that, we're, we're reading through Isaiah and uh, Luke simultaneously. You can grab a copy out there in the entry. Follow along with us. So we, we see this, Isaiah speaks, 700 years before that silent night, God spoke to his people, Israel, through the prophet Isaiah. Israel's crying out to God, they're about to be sent into exile because of their own disobedience and sin. But God speaks of this coming Messiah who would deliver them 
from exile and deliver them and give them hope. But what's interesting is there are these, actually in the book of Isaiah, there are these two mysterious figures being talked about in, in, their, in regard to their hope and peace on earth. The first one is a conquering king. There's a lot of mention about this king who's going to come and reign. We think of like Aragorn, uh, Aragorn from, from Lord of the Rings. Uh, this, this, this king who's going to come and rescue Israel from their enemies and rule uh, victoriously over the known world. But then he also keeps talking about this suffering servant. This man who's going to be, they call him a man of sorrows, one who's going to be lonely, despised, reject, rejected, even die. And it's like, what a buzzkill, Isaiah. Like, why, we want to talk about Aragon, and all you want to talk about is Eeyore as, as well. There is one who is going to be despised, yet exalted. A servant who will be despised, yet exalted. Look at verse 13 here. Isaiah 52, we're going to have it on the New Living Translation up on the screen. You follow along with your copy. It says, verse 13, see... God says through Isaiah, my servant will, be pro- will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Now, if you're going to behold, he says, look, here's one coming that's going to be highly exalted and prosper. What are you expecting to see? I would expect some Thor-like Adonis, right? Some king would come riding in, you know, on the horse slow motion and kind of take off his helmet and his flowing locks are just blowing in the wind and, and he takes like a little child up onto his knee and just kind of looks at everybody, like gives you the wink and slow, you know, like there's this, this coming king who's here to save us. But look at, when we look, look, look at what we behold, verse 14, but many were amazed when they saw him, and not necessarily in a good way. His face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was even a man. Now, instead of Thor, we have Quasimodo. This is, this is not the picture we'd have in our head of a prospering, exalted king. But look at as he goes on. He says, he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. What we see in this servant is outwardly, he's not very impressive. Outwardly, he's unimpressive. And, and this is Jesus, right? When he came into the world, he came. He didn't come into a palace. He was born in, into a, a stable, or actually, very likely a cave, actually. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't born in a royal crib, all gold-plated, zone like, like baby Jesus sleep number. Like, he came into a food trough, into a main king idea. Like one of our most famous kind of Christmas prophecies, right? Isaiah 9. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, uh, Prince of Peace. Now, I always have the Phillips, Craig, and Dean version of that in my head. Thanks, guys. Um, verse 7. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. So this, this sounds like a king is going to rule and his rule is just going to get better and bigger. So how can we have... So what is it going to be, Isaiah? Is it going to be a conquering king or is it going to be this suffering, despised, rejected servant? And what we see in the Word of God is that the answer is yes. It's both. 
This is what we're taught in Philippians chapter 2. When, when Paul says he, God, Jesus himself, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And not get more despised and rejected. But, it says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This is the paradox. The Christmas paradox. The, the Godhead can be seen veiled in flesh, or as we sing, mild he lay his glory by. See, the only way that you and I could see the God who lives in unapproachable light is if he hid himself in plain sight. He cloaked his glory in humanity. We, none of us can climb the mountain to God. And so God had to descend the mountain to us. And this is the only way that we could see God and sinner reconciled. The most majestic one in the universe becoming a rejected nobody. They go, why would Israel reject their own king? Like, hello, he's here to rescue you, you numbskulls. But before we, we throw them under the bus, we reject Jesus for the same reasons. They, they, that gets us even more riled up. I think that's one of the reasons that the, the issue of abortion is so intense. And I know the hardest thing I've ever done was, was speak at the graveside of a stillborn with their, own, with their parents. So the idea of baby Jesus at Christmas time is so poignant because it carries the idea of a baby suffering for the sins of the adults all around him, the innocent child, for the guilty rebel. And now that I think of my own little girl, I can't even finish that sentence. Chris Rice has the beautiful line in Welcome to Our World, singing to Jesus as he came. He says, Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born a child, an innocent child. We know the, the Christmas promise in Isaiah 7. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us incarnate. Isaiah 9, we said, for a child to be born to us, and that child, that holy God himself, would be beaten and bloodied beyond recognition. Now, why did this child come? Well, Jesus, this, he said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He told Israel, you are sinners. And what you most need freed from is not the tyranny of Rome. It's not just relief from their burdensome taxes. What you need relief from is the grave of your own sin. And Jesus' audience, they didn't take kindly to that. Just like us, they did not like being told they were wrong. And so the, Israel's leaders... The Jewish mob, the Roman authorities, Satan himself, they banded together to snuff out the light of the world. But in that very process, the only sinless, innocent one on the scene was murdered. I want you to think for a second. Think back in your life. What are some of the worst things you've ever done? Things you're least proud of, the most ashamed or embarrassed by? And we all have those things that we very unjustly condemned. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. That his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my 
people, Isaiah says. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Not just rejected, but killed. And it turns out, in the paradox, the innocent was murdered for the guilty, for you and for me. The most horrible and unjust atrocities for, from the Holocaust to child starvation to domestic violence to my own selfishness. But, but why? Like, what good does the innocent one dying for the guilty ones actually accomplish? For that, we look at the very end of the servant song. We see the defeated yet living victor. Now, you remember, verse 9, we just left him, the Messiah, buried in a tomb. Now, what's next for someone buried in a tomb? Nothing, right? You are dead. You are nothing but worm food from this point forward in your story. But look at what happens in the story that continues in verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. How is that a good plan? And cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will. Here's what comes on the other side of that. He will have many descendants. He will, after death, enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. How is the crushing death of God's suffering servant part of his, he says, good plan? Like he lost, right? He's defeated, right? Like how is that a good plan? And while Jesus' resurrection may not be shouted here, because if Jesus just died, if Jesus has died, his death is just another death where death wins. But Jesus rising from the dead proves that he's defeated death that he's defeated sin on our behalf, and it proves that he is the conquering king who's going to reign forever. And he showed himself to be the prototype of a whole new kind of human. Because unlike, I mean, he, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but he just was raised back to the kind of life that he'd already been experiencing, and he would have to die a second time. But Jesus opened the portal to humanity 2.0. He was born that man no more may die. And that's why we can sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. The paradox is that, yes, he would be momentarily defeated and die, and yet it was through that very defeat, through that very death, that he would live and reign forever. And on the other side of the empty tomb, we can truly see the suffering servant become the conquering king, whose dominion will be vast, and his prosperity never ends. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Which means that we get to join in with Jesus. Those of us in Christ get to join into humanity 2.0. That we may no more die, 
that we may live and reign with him forever. Paul speaks to this in Philippians. He says he will transform the body of our human condition into the likeness of his glorious body to no longer die by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And this never again to die is not just speaking to the quantity of life that we will live forever. It also speaks to the quality of our life, that the new life that we're raised to is a life like Jesus's. And what does that life look like? Well, let's be your here. Maybe you're going, how is God allowing this in my life if he truly is good? Now, our culture doesn't know how to deal with this. Our secular culture, all we can say is we just try to eliminate, avoid suffering at all costs. We don't have a category for suffering. Either eliminate it or just distract ourselves from it by Netflix and alcohol. But the good news of the Christmas paradox, it may not solve the problem of suffering for us, but it does speak to it. Because of the manger... God says, I entered into your suffering with you. Jesus becoming a human, he entered into our mud, into our cancer, into the sex trafficking, into hunger and domestic violence and political oppression. The man of sorrows entered our pain. And our most acute need in our suffering is not necessarily a solution from it, but the presence of another with us in it. And that's what God with us, Emmanuel, accomplished. But then the cross says, I understand your suffering. I took it on for you. Not only did I enter into it with you, but, but, I, but I took it on. The man of sorrows understands our pain because he experienced pain. The man of sorrows understands our persecution because he was persecuted. The man of sorrows understands our death because he too died as a human And the proof that God is good is not found in him preventing any suffering from ever happening, but from him willingly taking that suffering into himself on the cross. But even more than just saying, yes, I suffered too, the empty tomb says, I will one day end suffering. And not just end suffering, but redeem it. What Samwise says at the end of Lord of the Rings He's making all the sad things untrue. And Jesus' suffering was not wasted. It was part of God's good plan. And look at me. Our suffering is not wasted either. And it's a good plan. Even if a trail for us, and as Ross has spoken to this before, it's the, the path is a J-curve. And Jesus came to show us that he went down into death before he was risen up into life, that he came down into our world, down into our suffering, down into death, so that he could be raised up to life, that he could be raised to victory, but not for himself, for us. And, and not only for us, but to invite us into that trail with him, to follow him. Philippians 3, Paul says, My goal is to know Jesus And the power of his resurrection. I want to know the way up. But I also know that means first down. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. I have to take the path by faith. That the ending of this is resurrection, life, and victory. But to get there, I've got to first go down with Christ into suffering and into death. And that's why he says in the chapter before that, have the same mentality, the same mindset that Jesus had. 
But what does that path look like for us? It's found in the, in the second paradoxical truth, that the way to innocence is guilt. The way to innocence is guilt. Now, how many of you love being told that you're wrong? Like, you're like, that is the best. Like, we just get together on Friday night as friends, circle up, and just talk about our faults, right? Is that what you do on your Friday nights, too? One reason that we, like Jesus, we like to reject, like Israel, excuse me, like to reject Christ is, is that he says he, that we're wrong, right? We don't like that. Excuse me? It's not wrong. Now, we love pointing out wrong in other people, right? We're very quick to point out the evil in our political opponent. We like to play the victim card of those who are treating us harshly at, at work or, or at home. And we're very patient with our own junk, right? We, we understand where we're coming from. We're more nuanced. But for somebody else, we, we just want so desperately to be seen as right, innocent, vindicated. But the paradox that we see here is that the way to be declared innocent is actually by admitting that we are guilty to the core. And that the only way, the only one who was innocent, the only human who ever, and he was declared guilty so that I, the truly guilty, could be declared innocent in Christ. And that frees me up to be able to, to confess. Because when I confess my sin, it leads me not to be condemned to hell, but into a healing process where God says, I know. Like, I know that about you. In fact, I know all the sins that you still don't see. And I still accept you as my son, my daughter, because my son died in your place. And now we can actually get to the work of, of healing you and restoring you. So not only is there freedom in, in, in confession, there's also freedom in forgiveness. So when I was back in Bible school, uh, I had a, there was a drop ceiling above our dorm room with like these two-by-fours running along in like an attic. So I was up there uh, walking across the two-by-fours trying to get a, brief, a suitcase down. Now, in our marriage, uh, one of us is a gymnast. Okay. You can guess who that was. And, and I'm, so I'm trying to do the balance beam, and I start to go. And so I, I go down, and one of my feet goes through the drop ceiling on this side of the 2 by 4 And the other foot goes through the drop ceiling on the other side of the 2 by 4 Hello! <laughs> and, and I totally demolished. So I was broken. Right? The ceiling was broken, and somebody had to pay for it. It was, e now, it was either going to be the Bible school that I was attending, or I could pay for it myself. Now, I was a poor college student, so you can probably guess who had to pay for the ceiling. But what we see is when, when damage is done, right? when, when something is broken, someone has to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it. And when it comes to wrongs being done, we can try to either force the other person to pay for it, or we can forgive, we can let it go. And when we do, when we let it go, when we forgive, we're actually in essence saying, I'm going to pay for it. I'm, I'm not going to charge you. Now, now when we try to, in, in our own hearts, try to make someone else pay and hold that against them in bitterness and resentment, it only damages us. What do they say? Bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Yeah, remember the opening line? His name was Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it, right? Eustace became a dragon. Eustace was a cocky, uh, arrogant little boy, and, and, he, and he symbolically becomes this kind of monstrous dragon. And to become who, who he was originally created to be, he had to go through this painful process where Aslan, the Christ-like figure in the story, has to remove his scales. But it's a painful process. 
That the lion's claws are tearing off the dragon's scales so that he could become who Aslan had originally created him to be. And in the same way, Paul says this about us in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. That is not a pleasant experience. Death is not pleasant. To be crucified is not pleasant. To have the scales ripped from us is not a pleasant process. But, he says, I no longer live. What's been removed is that old dragon, the self-involved, destructive, chaotic life of my old sin nature. But Christ now lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old man is gone. Then a new has come, which is what? What does that new path look like? Well, we're following Christ in the J-curve. Just like Christ went down into death so that he could live and reign forever, we join him in death so that we can live. And this process is we die to self, die to the old way of putting ourselves in the center of the universe. The new self puts God in the center of the universe and focuses on the needs of others before ourselves, just like Christ. We take our eyes off ourselves and put them on others. Because isn't that what he said? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And as we join him, the seed that was buried in the ground to give life to an orchard, we can die to ourselves for the sake of those around us. And I know I can come home at the end of the day, and I can walk into the house, and make everybody else revolve around me. And how are people serving me? How am I doing what I want to do? And I know from experience, even if I get my way, that's not life, right? Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the example that you set for us. That in humility, thinking of us before yourself, you came into this world as a suffering servant. And through the descent into humanity and death, you were able to find the J-curve trajectory back up into victory in life. And Father, we know that the death to self is 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 a painful process. And Father, it's a lifelong process of what it means to have the lion's claws pull off the dragon's scales. But we just ask for the grace to 